This episode of Manage Smarter is presented by Sales Fuel Coach, our adaptive sales coaching featuring five-minute quick coaching personalized to each sales rep. Learn more about Sales Fuel Coach at salesfuel.com. Welcome to the Manage Smarter Podcast with hosts C. Lee Smith and Audrey Strong. We're glad you're here for discussions on new ways to manage smarter, hire, develop, and retain talent, improve results, and propel team performance to new heights. This is the Manage Smarter Podcast. Welcome to Manage Smarter, everyone. Lee, today we have a guest that is prolific in uh, tips for not only managers and entrepreneurs on how to deal with the COVID-19 virus, but he's got a new book out about it, and I just cannot wait to start talking to him. You know, as someone who just uh, published his own book, it's like I'm amazed how quickly he was able to turn this book around uh, and and get it to print and get it to market. So, uh, first of all, I'm amazed by that. But second of all, he talks about two things that that are that are very near and dear to my heart. He talks about resiliency. He talks about adaptivity. Those are two things that you really need as a manager to to, to get through the COVID-19 crisis. And I'm so excited to have him as a guest on today. And he's local, so that's cool too. Yeah, you're both in Columbus. Um, Manage Smarter Podcast, everyone. I am Audrey Strong, the Vice President of Communications here at Sales Fuel, and my co-host is C. Lee Smith, the president and CEO of Sales Fuel. That's right. All right. Dr. Gleb Sapersky is a behavioral economist and cognitive neuroscientist studying the psychology of decision-making in business and other contexts. He spent over 15 years in academia, including seven years as a professor at the Ohio State University, Mm -hmm. author of the new book just out here in 2020. It's called Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal of the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. Also part of the C-Suite Network with us here at Manage Smarter, and he is the CEO of a company called Disaster Avoidance Experts. And it um, sounds like a company that would, you know, help you pick up after a hurricane, but what it really does is it's helps help leaders- us avoid 2020, is it? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much the entire year has just been a crapshoot. <laughs> it helps leaders and businesses avoid big problems and formulate new plans. Dr. Sapersky, we are privileged to have you on the show. Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you so much, Audrey. And thank you, Lee. I appreciate that. And thank you, Lee, for mentioning about the book. Yeah, it takes so long time, usually. I mean, I published a bunch of books in the traditional sphere, but my publisher approached me and said, hey, we want to get out a book super quickly. So they really pushed it. You know, it's like if Hillary Clinton can get her memoirs out in in two months, they can get a book about COVID-19 out in two months. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing. So it's like, and I commend you, I've been reading the book, you know, uh, and uh, I'm fascinated with, with a lot of the content and I hope to talk about some of that today. So the first thing that you out of the gate, let's get everybody's minds aligned with yours, which is you're basically saying, based on what you know, that you don't think there's going to be a vaccine until 2022, correct? Right. Uh, widely vac- wide vaccination. I think that vaccine will like it's possible that a vaccine will be approved in the most optimistic scenario by summer of 2021 which is the 12 to 18 month time period you're talking about. But what most people don't think about is then how long it takes to actually produce enough vaccine, distribute it and vaccinate people. That takes a long time. That, and that uh, takes in the most optimal scenario, six months. And that's assuming a very high level of government competence. So that takes us into early 2022 for widespread vaccination. And based on the current government performance, it has not shown the widespread level of competence. Let's say it that way. Look at the amount of protective personal equipment, the testing regimen. So I'm skeptical that we'll get there even by the beginning of 2022. And it's always a good idea for managers, though, to, you know, to uh, plan for the worst, hope for the best. Or as I like to say, it's like, you know, have three plans in place. So 
plan for a scenario as you're describing it, uh, plan for a more optimistic scenario where we you know, have a vaccine approved, say, by the end of 2020, and then it takes you know, the course of six to 12 months to get that deployed and, 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 and distributed to everybody. You got a plan for that. And then somewhere in between is probably most likely, I think, where we're going to hit. So it's always a good idea then to, yeah, you got it. You can't be caught flat footed. You have to be thinking in terms of, okay, what if this doesn't go the way that I want it to? You know, my optimism says, you know, that I want it to the optimism of CEOs, of community leaders, government leaders. It's like, you know, what if it doesn't happen? Got to be prepared for that. Yeah, and let's even realize that in all honesty, my scenario that I said, it, the, the first one kind of approval of whites of the vaccine by summer of 2021 is a quite optimistic scenario. If you look at the various ranges of scientific experts and epidemiologists who know what vaccines are going on, they talk about you know 24 to 36 months for approval. That takes us into approval into summer of 2022, if you want to go with the 24 range instead of the 12 month range. And then by 2023 or 2024, you have widespread vaccination. So my scenario is actually a quite optimistic one. And I give in the book a range of scenarios and that's kind of the optimistic scenario. Because if you think about it, we have not yet, we don't yet have an effective vaccine for the flu. We've been trying to get that for a century, but our vaccine for the flu is only 50% effective. You know, that won't be good enough for COVID-19 if we can't find an effective vaccine. So it's possible that we won't be able to find a good enough vaccine and that our only vaccine will be 50% effective. That would be pretty bad, but it's possible. So you say basically start thinking in times of, start thinking in terms of years, not weeks. Um, and because we're the Manage Smarter podcast, I know the book has, you know, personal um, safety and tips on how to feel better personally. But do we want to talk first about your six areas of business change and adaptability so that managers can know what to look at? Of course. So what I talk about in the book and my expertise is in how companies can avoid disasters, not simply recover from them. I talk about that a little bit as well, but avoid disasters. And part of that is how do you respond to these slow moving train wrecks like the pandemic? We as human beings don't respond very well to these problems because that's not how our brain is wired. We are wired to be way too optimistic. That is really important to realize. So I talk about six areas of how you as managers can adapt your internal business to the pandemic and six separate areas of how you can ex adapt your external business model to the pandemic. So the six areas of the internal business model, you want to look at six areas again, motivation, engagement, effective communication, noticing and solving problems and conflicts, cultivating trust, internal controls and security of various sorts and accountability. Let's go for those one by one very quickly. Motivation engagement. Now your team, your people are likely motivated initially by this emergency, you know, go home, work at home and so on. People are still motivated, but after a little bit of time that emergency mode wears out and people are getting less and less motivated, dismotivated. Because when you're at home, when you're working at home, you're not surrounded by your coworkers and the, your coworkers, your tribal members, help provide that motivation. So that's a big problem that people are getting increasingly less motivated, less engaged. And of course, if you're taking them back to the office, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of uncertainty. That causes dismotivation as well. I strongly encourage my clients to minimize their 
in-person office teams move to virtual as much as possible. Something that many people don't realize that are, want to go back to normal, they want security and so on. They think everything's going to be fine. In reality, in just a couple of months, when the second wave hits, most likely in September, October, everyone think will have to be shut down and will, people will have to go back to the home, working at home again. That's why I strongly encourage people to just do virtual teams, not yo-yo back and forth. So that's kind of motivation engagement. Then effective communication. Effective communication is notoriously hard in virtual teams. People who are used to you know, in-person communication really struggle in virtual communication because there's so much textual communication. You use collaboration software like Slack, Trello, Microsoft Teams, and then you miss those body language, the tone of voice things. Those are things that you miss out on and you have a lot of miscommunication. That's a matter of professional development. You can address that in advance. Then noticing and solving problems and conflicts. Related to communication, but somewhat distinct. When you're in person, you can notice a lot of problems because you see other people's body language, tone of voice. You miss out on that when you're doing virtual teams. That's a matter of professional development. You can provide professional development in helping people notice and solve problems and conflicts. Then cultivating trust. When you're in the office, it's very natural to cultivate trust. You have those in-person relationships, communication. That doesn't happen when you're in virtual teams. So you need to create institutions. This is not professional development. This is a matter of institutions. You need to create those to cultivate trust. Next, internal control, security of various sorts. People don't think nearly enough about cybersecurity. There is a lot more hacking going on, according to the FBI. And because people, ordinary people who work at home virtually, they don't think about cybersecurity protocols as they would in the office. And that's a matter of training. You can, you can address that. You also need to change your other internal controls, like financial controls, like measures of effectiveness and efficiency, which are going to be different in virtual teams than in the office. Finally, accountability. This is really important to realize. When you're in the office, managers can easily hold people accountable just by walking around, seeing who's engaged, who's disengaged, chatting to them. That's much harder to do in when people work at home. So you need to create reporting structures that provide that accountability. It's also peer-to-peer -peer accountability. You can, you can pop into Bob's office and say, hey, Bob, where's that report that you w were promising to send me yesterday? You, you know, and Bob would find it much harder to ignore you than he would find an email message. So you need to figure out how to provide peer-to-peer -peer accountability to employees. So those are the six internal areas of collaboration. There are six separate areas of external business a model that you need to change to adapt to the COVID-19, but I'm going to stop here. Okay, so I'm curious then about when you say that uh, effective communication when working remotely, it's harder, uh, but it's a matter of professional development. And, and so what I'm curious about is, you know, when you're on a Zoom call or something like that, you know, if it's out of the frame, you can't see somebody fidgeting, you can't see you know, what, what someone's doing with their hands when it's outside the frame, uh, you know, there's a lot of cues that you don't get when you're in 3D versus when you're in 2D. So how would you uh, improve the professional development to get people then to overcome that? There are a number of behavioral techniques that you can use to ensure that there is clarity of communication and there is no misunderstanding but that apply both to effective communication, problem solving, and resolution. One of those is echoing. When somebody says something, then you echo back what they say, so rephrase what you, they're saying in your own words, and then you can make sure that, hey, 
is this this is what I'm hearing you say is this what you meant to convey and then you could see if what they conveyed is what you heard so making sure that you're not losing that communication and that maybe there's tone of voice issues or body language issues that they thought would signal something to you that you didn't get or vice versa so the vice versa you can check for you can ask them to repeat, rephrase what you said. Ask them to echo. Say, "Hey, can you can can you clarify what you think I so you heard me say?" And then you could check to make sure that they are hearing you correctly, that they are getting the message that you meant to convey. Then, so that's kind of about clarity of communication. Then about emotions, you can check. You know, this is not something we usually do in the office, but in the virtual communication, it's really important to check something like, hey, how do you feel about uh, this project? So ask people about how they feel, and that gets at issues of body language, that gets issues of tone of voice that you don't get when you do virtual communication, which are, it's much harder to get because when you ask about how people feel, they... In, textual form describe how they feel they just relate how they feel and you need to notice that you need to have emotional intelligence and social intelligence you need to build your empathy to check and see what those people are feeling you know we don't pay nearly enough attention to empathy to how important emotions are when you look at decision making research and the neuroscience on this topic that's not what am i an expert in emotions drive about 80 to 90 percent of our decisions of our behaviors and it's natural for us to sense that when we are in the office, when we're engaging on one-on-one, -on -one. but when you're doing virtual communication, it's much harder to do that and you need to put a particular attention, develop your ability to sense other people's emotions and get at their emotions. I love this. Well, I wanna go back to something that we haven't heard from any other guests on the show that I love about your press materials and all that, Glad, which is you, you say we're wired to be optimistic and that the prospect of thinking in years and our lives being different for the long term is something that you yourself struggled with. And you mm -hmm. also say that, I'd like to hear more about that and also how you say maintaining one's sense of purpose um, and sense of purpose in work and in, and in life in general is very, very important. And I'd like to hear your advice mm -hmm. on that. So with the first, I'll, I'll be the first to say that I'm an optimist. Now, I suffer from a dangerous judgment error called the optimism bias. Now, we all suffer from dangerous judgment errors. These are called cognitive biases. My expertise is in debiasing. How do you solve these dangerous judgment errors that come from how our human brain is wired? Because unfortunately, our brain, our feelings, our intuitions, our gut reactions are wired not for the modern environment. It's only been around since World War II. We are wired for the savannah environment when we lived in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people. So that causes us a lot of dangerous judgment errors. One of them for certain people like myself is called the optimism bias. The optimism bias relates to being more optimistic than is warranted, thinking that the world is a more friendly place, focusing on opportunities and not threats, think having high expectations of myself and others. And managers, people like myself, I manage, I lead a six-people company, Disaster Avoidance Experts Consulting, Coaching and Training, as you mentioned, in these issues. People like myself 
and leaders in general tend to be too optimistic, way too optimistic for their own good. They tend to th have too much optimism about the future and managers suffer from this often. So what they tend to think about and what they tend to fall into is part of the optimism bias is called the normalcy bias. When we tend to perceive the future as being much like today and from a positive perspective, we don't realize how much, how major impacts can greatly undermine our future, whether it's the COVID-19 pandemic or the fiscal crisis of 2008-2009, we underestimate the long-term impacts of slow-moving train wrecks, like those sorts of disasters. We want to get back to normal. It's very intuitive. We want normalcy. And when I was first researching COVID-19, the situation there, I, I had a really hard time accepting that information. It was really a difficult struggle because I could just see if you just, uh, you know, extrapolate the implications of what's happening with COVID-19 and the vaccine and so on, it's just very scary. It creates a very scary, very harsh world that we live in, and it's so difficult to accept it. So I, the only reason I could accept it, I mean, and I had to kick my, you know, drag my clients kicking and screaming over the line of accepting it, is because it will be so much more painful in the future if we don't accept it. So just having that long-term perspective is incredibly important to make good decisions from for optimistic people like myself. And if we can accept it and see, okay, what's the long-term implications of it, just simply plan it out, add everything together, add all the vaccine stuff together, add the implications together, we will see that we're going to be in such a depression, in such a harsh, harsh economic climate where it's going to be much, much worse than many people think. It's very hard for me to accept it as an optimistic person. So that's a, that's a struggle and that the sooner managers accept this information, internalize and plan for the long term, the much better off they'll be. So that's kind of... Go ahead. What about managers who are skeptics so that when they hear all the gloom and doom in the media and everything like that, immediately then raise a skeptical eye to that and, and want to say, you know, that's like, okay, I don't believe things are as bad as, as what everybody's saying. Well, it's great that you don't believe it, but that doesn't uh, change the nature of reality. <laughs> okay, but they question whether or not sure. that actually is the reality because it hasn't been proven yet. Of course, it hasn't been proven. So it, it's not been proven. It's just something you simply add together. You know, this is what I'm talking about. You simply put the facts in the line. You know, a lot of people, there's a study of 1,087 board members who fired their CEOs. So not simply managers, but CEOs, kind of the top level leadership. And if you look at the reasoning for why they fired the the top five reason 23% of these CEOs were fired for denialism, denying negative facts about reality. It's overwhelmingly more problematic. If you look at the reality of the situation that managers, leaders of various sorts deny negative facts about reality because they're uncomfortable with it. So here we go back to emotions. Our emotions cause us to flinch away from uncomfortable information, from negative information about the future. We want to be optimistic. We want to be hopeful. But you know, it's not going to help you to be hopeful if the reality is bad, if it's negative. So you don't, you want to look at the reality with a clear eye. You don't want to look at reality for rose-colored glasses. You want to de-anchor yourself because we're all anchored to being excessively optimistic 
far by far the managers are leaders of various sorts so you, you when you want to not believe negative reality that's not going to help you very much okay, especially the, when you want to think about the strategy you know hope is not a strategy so many people you know are hopeful but hope is not a strategy it's a great quote attributed to Vince Lombardi and like you said yourself Lee you know hope for the best but prepare for the worst so regardless of what you might hope for it's really not a strategy you want to be prepared for the worst situation and when you look at the reality clearly you'll see that the reality you know this is not the the worst situation by far you know the way, there are plenty of worse scenarios but the reality of the situation even the most optimistic one is pretty bad and th those ty same types of people though were also once when, when things are rosy things are great and the projections are wonderful and everything, they're also very skeptical of that too so yeah, it's not a matter of I don't think leaning leaning to be ways. too really op too leaning optimistic. I think it's just sort of like uh, you know I don't believe you know at face value everything that I'm being told. So I'm going to research it. I'm going to check my data points and see if there's actually evidence of what you're telling me is actually true. Mm -hmm. And you know if, if the reality is is there or whatever, then certainly they have to come to that conclusion. Yeah, exactly. And of course, all the evidence for this is in my book, Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal, the COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic. So folks who want to research that topic are welcome to check out the book and look at the research. But even I'll give you clear indicators. You know, if you remember back about two months ago, when uh, the president and top level leaders were making predictions about what would the death rate by end of August, they said something like, you know, we'll have some 60 to 70,000 people who die by the end of August. Those were the optimistic projections. They said, optimistically, we'll have that. Well, you could see already that here it's the start of June, and we have over 100,000 people dead. Over 100,000 people dead. So you don't want to believe those optimistic projections. You don't want to believe people who say, you know, hey, we'll have the vaccine by the end of 2020. You know, this is just like we'll have 100,000, just like we'll have 60,000 deaths by the end of August. By the end of August. Yeah, that, that's not how it works. You just look at the numbers, you add them together. Nobody who was actually looking at the numbers was saying we'll have 60,000 deaths by the end of August because the reality was our numbers were going up, up, up. And we, it, there, I mean, I'll be very surprised if we have less than 150,000 deaths by the end of August. And that goes to what I was saying there because there were also projections though from models that were well over 200,000 and, and, and higher, you know, at that point in time where I think that's the worst case. You have you, you have the most optimistic. Reality tends to have a, tends to fall someplace in the middle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the we can see that the optimistic reality, where that was not not realistic. The two hundred thousand numbers, those were without interventions, without shutdowns, without restrictions, and so on. The optimistic projections with shutdowns and restrictions were 60,000. That's what you had, you know, the president and Anthony Fauci and others saying, you know, up, that, that that's what we're going to hope for. And you don't want to look at those optimistic projections. You could see that they didn't pan out. So you don't want to be too optimistic about it, unfortunately. And, and, yeah, and what I'm saying is, like, I also don't believe that you, you should, you know, mire yourself then in the most pessimistic of projections either. Uh, of course, because that can really damage your psyche and leaders mm -hmm. really need to stay positive and calm uh, during this time period, because that's what people are looking to us for. And, yes. you know, so I'm not saying that we fake it till we make it. But I'm, I am just saying <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, let, let's be level headed about this way. And, and don't believe the most optimistic. Don't believe the most pessimistic. But mm -hmm. plan for them. You have to plan for it. But like as far as what you project out there or whatever, let, let's let's be calm and level headed. So mm -hmm. your staff is also calm and level headed as we go through this crisis. 
Yeah, I think that's very insightful. And that's why the, my book really doesn't focus too much on the projections. It says, here's what the scientists are projecting, you know, but that's not the, that's not what the book focuses on. It focuses on problem solving. How do you pragmatically prepare for a variety of scenarios? The optimistic scenario, the moderate scenario, and the pessimistic one. And what do you need to do that will be effective in all of these scenarios? Those six areas of the internal business model that I outlined will be effective for all of the scenarios, no matter what kind of reality we'll live in in the future. And the six separate external areas of business, how do you adapt the external areas of your business that I talk about in the book, are also pragmatic and effective and relevant for all sorts of scenarios, no matter what kind of reality we live in. It's the, Audrey, like the I, old I, I, adage, I, I, be prepared if you were a Girl Scout or a Boy Scout. That's really what, <laughs> a, a great tool f- to help everybody. And then uh, if you would like to reach out to Gleb, um, his website is disasteroftwinsexperts.com. You mentioned the book again. So uh, this has been very interesting food for thought. And, and Audrey, uh, I got to tell you, like my favorite part of the book so far is all all the uh, the details on cognitive biases. Uh, hmm. I think that's my favorite part of the book so far. And it's like, and and, and it's a great read just for that part alone. Thank you. Yes, the cognitive biases are the key of why we make bad decisions, and the strategies are how do we address them as managers and make better decisions going forward. Well, we appreciate your time on the show, and uh, I think this is fantastic uh, toolbox for everybody to dig into. And uh, Glad, thanks so much for coming. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Audrey. I really appreciate it. And thank you, Leah. Appreciate that as well. I do too. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend on iTunes, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get more great information at salesfuel.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.